Hello, and welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am Garrett Ashley Mullet. Today we've got a lot to get into about authority and political dissent and disagreement between people of different political persuasions. So we're going to dive right into it. <clears throat> First off, let's read a question from a listener. We've got Ben from Ohio who wrote to our program the following, quote, so we as Christians are supposed to be kind and helpful and uplifting. How do you go about doing that to a liberal, for example, while also not giving the impression you support their stance or point of views, end quote. So first off, thank you to Ben from Ohio. He's a regular listener to this program. I appreciate your question. It's an excellent question, actually, and one that not a few Christians struggle with because we want to love people. And unfortunately, in our day and age, there's a lot of philosophical baggage that comes with uh, our teachings about love. And we have a fuzzy idea very often in this culture with the way that philosophy has descended into a kind of anti-philosophy and the way that love has been allowed to be redefined as meaning affirmation for any and all life choices and lifestyles. But we need to remember that, first of all, love does not mean agreeing with and affirming everything that a person might say or do. In fact, love very often requires that we gently, lovingly, respectfully disagree with things that are not true, that are not good, that are not healthy, that are not uh, godly. So we have to get that idea out of the way or we have to start with that foundation from the get-go. If we don't start with that foundation, there's a lot of the text that we're going to read that does not make sense. It'll be confusing and it'll frustrate us. And we're just going to throw our hands up and say, ah, whatever, you know, I can't figure it out. I'm just going to, you know, be a, a person who doesn't get into all this. And, and so we don't want to do that. We don't think that is a positive uh, satisfactory position to take. And we know that instinctively, you know, I take, for instance, the marriage relationship. My wife and I have been married for 14 years now, as of November 25th, that was our 14th anniversary. And we have not always agreed down through the years. But anybody who's been married for any amount of time knows that disagreeing with your spouse can look a lot of different ways. You can disagree and you will disagree. I mean, being in close proximity and having shared interests with another person for an extended period of time, it's not a question of if you're going to have conflict and disagreement. It's a question of when you're going to have conflict and disagreement and what kind of conflict you're going to have. Is it going to be good conflict? Is it going to be productive conflict? Or will you and your spouse alternate between uh, approaching conflict in myriad, unhelpful, unloving ways? This happens especially when you're tired, when you're feeling fearful, when you're feeling upset, when there's a lot of confusion in your situation. Or when there's a lot of baggage, there's a lot of things that haven't been dealt with in the past, conflict can build as we uh, fail to adequately resolve it as it comes up. And so we know from the marriage relationship that we're going to disagree. And so do we do that openly? Do we, do we do that honestly? Do we do that in a way that loves and respects our spouse, even when we feel like maybe they're being not as fair as they ought to be? You know, thankfully, my wife is a gracious person. And so when I have been difficult, she has been very 
loving and gentle with me. And so also, she sometimes is uh, an evasive person. I struggle more so with resisting my fight. You know, we all have the fight or flight response that is uh, inherent when we're in conflict, when we're in a threatening situation. And I struggle more with suppressing the fight response. And she struggles more with suppressing the flight response. And so when conflict happens, I want to charge in and I have to stop and say, wait a second, Garrett, you need to think about this. Is what you're thinking about the situation true? Are you being fair? Are you being reasonable? Did you maybe misappraise this and you're feeling frustrated with yourself? And so that's bleeding into, bleeding over into the way that you're responding. And she, meanwhile, has to uh, consider, you know, is she just avoiding it? Is she retreating and, uh, you know, maybe missing an opportunity for us to work through some things? And so that's been a perennial, um, you know, area of growth for us. And I think for most couples, you know, most couples are uh, comprised of people that are opposite in some regards, not in all ways. You have to have some things in common in order to get married and uh, have a relationship and be attracted to one another. But very often, the old truism is proven correct that opposites attract. And so that's been the case with my wife and I. We were opposites in many regards back in high school when we very first met. And her opposites helped to balance out my opposites and, and vice versa. You know, my opposites end up helping to balance out her opposites so that we're not leaning, we're not lopsided to, uh, you know, one or another excess. You know, moderation is a virtue. And so if you have a spouse who can help you to moderate your more extreme tendencies, they might be strengths sometimes, but other times they can leave you vulnerable if you don't have someone who is coming in and saying, oh, wait a second, what about this, this, and this? You know, the, at the end of the day, the goal is not to validate all of your opinions as you have them when they very first pop into your brain. The goal is to get at the truth and to do what's right and to, to live a life that honors God and loves those around you. So, you know, I look at this issue of, you know, how do we go about loving and being kind and helpful and uplifting to liberals in our midst, in our communities, in our workplace, uh, in our neighborhood, how do we do that while not giving the impression that we support their stance or point of views? And I think I start from the foundation of, you know, how does conflict work out in my marriage? And then I build also on an understanding of human nature that comes from reading, it comes from personal experience, and it also comes from the experience of being a father. And I see my children very often get into conflict over a toy, you know, a new popular toy is uh, had by all if they can help it. And sometimes there's just not enough toys for everybody to be playing with that toy in the same way, all at the same time, right away. And so there has to be some way of resolving conflicts when everybody wants a limited uh, resource, a limited, uh, you know, uh, um, opportunity how do you ration that? How do you resolve disputes? How do you mediate if there is some wrong that is done? You know, if my five-year-old son Enoch, who just turned five yesterday, if he gets angry with his little brother John, who's two, and he hits him, he punches him, he pushes him, he kicks him, he throws something at him, he screams at him because John is grabbing a little Paw Patrol toy that 
Enoch wants to play with or was playing with or didn't really want to play with until John picked it up and now he's just being territorial. Not that that ever happens. If that is brought to my attention, I listen, I hear, somebody comes and reports it to me, whatever, I now have more than one problem. I have the problem of, well, who's going to play with the Paw Patrol toy? Am I going to just let John play with it? Am I going to just let Enoch have his way because he's upset? Or am I going to correct perhaps a wrong that was done to John by Enoch? Uh, You know, all of the above are things that I've got to figure out. And I don't love any of my children well if I'm always just giving them exactly what they want. I'm always affirming all of their decisions for how they relate to one another. So I look at that as a father, as a person in authority in my home, as the head of my home, And I see that I have to love my son, John, by sometimes stepping in and protecting him. I have to love my son, Enoch, by sometimes stepping in and correcting him and saying, no, son, you cannot treat your brother that way. That is not appropriate. You're responding to your agitation in an uncontrolled way that does not respect, it does not honor, does not love your little brother. And so also I think that extends out into broader society. You know, outside of my home, I'm not the head of, you know, the country. I'm not the head of the world. I'm not everybody's authority. I'm authority over my wife and my children as the head of my home, as the spiritual leader in my family, but I'm not the head over everybody. And so I don't have those same uh, mediating powers that uh, I do in my home, but I can do some form, some variation of the mediation that I do in my own home between my children, and I can still apply principles about uh, human nature and things that are true about the way that we should act from the scriptures, from what we read in God's word. When we read in God's word that we should uh, relate to the truth, relate to what is good, relate to God, relate to one another in X, Y, or Z ways, then that holds true in the way that we carry out our um, you know, marriage conflict that holds true in the way that we carry out uh, you know, mediation of conflict between our children. And that also should, it should hold true in the way that we resolve conflict in broader society between other people. Uh, you know, political dissent is uh, you know, rife with conflict right now. And you have where there is the ability a lot of censorship going on, which is not respectful. That is not a respectful way to treat your neighbor where they have an opinion, they have an idea about how things should be done, they maybe disagree, and you silence them. You silence their ability to object to the way that they're being treated or to the way that things are being handled. They feel like there's some wrong that is being done, and if they're just muzzled and they're silenced and their ability to to, uh, bring things to light and to bring accountability, if that is silenced in the name of quote-unquote love, that is a problem. And that is a problem that we are seeing a lot of. We're seeing Facebook and Twitter and other outlets, YouTube, uh, you know, deleting content that they disagree with. And they say that they're fact-checking. They're not so much fact-checking as they are suppressing anything that Uh, is contrary to their agenda. And so they have a certain worldview. We have a certain worldview if we're conservatives, if we're Christians, if we're conservative Christians. And so how do we navigate that? How do we respond, for instance, when uh, somebody on Facebook 
becomes belligerent with us and become becomes abusive? How do we respond when somebody at work or in our neighborhood becomes abusive towards us? You know, we have our own view of things and we're trying to do what we believe is right. We're trying to live according to the dictates of our conscience, having an informed conscience. You know, conscience literally comes from the Latin meaning with knowledge. We're trying to act according to our knowledge of what is good and true. And so as we are doing that and we're endeavoring to imperfectly, yes, but faithfully by God's grace, we come into conflict because there are disagreements as to what is true and what is good and what is evil. And so when we are navigating those conflicts, we don't want to affirm alternative ideas which are not good, which are not true. And we don't love those around us by affirming those things. But you could disagree in any number of ways, and they're not all necessarily going to be appropriate. You know, two wrongs don't make a right. And I see this with my children very often, where one of my children does something objectionable, they do something obnoxious, they do something that they know is going to provoke their brother or their sister. And they're doing it for that purpose. They want to agitate, they want to upset, they're just being annoying. Uh, on purpose because they have a sinful nature that uh, needs to be corrected. Uh, you know, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of instruction will be, uh, you know, a great tool in driving that from them and teaching them wisdom. You know, you want to give consequences, sometimes negative consequences, to mitigate worse negative consequences. As a parent, if my two-year-old, if my five-year-old keeps running out into the middle of a busy street, or there's cars coming and those cars might hit my child and kill them and strike them and they die. I have to give some kind of a negative consequence that gets my child's attention. If I've told them repeatedly, don't play in the street, don't play in the road. There has to be some kind of a negative consequence to keep them from being destroyed if I love them, if I care about them. But that doesn't mean that any negative consequence and every negative consequence is appropriate. This requires wisdom. This requires uh, an examination of our motives and where our heart is at. It requires a uh, diligent study of what God's Word says about uh, how we should relate to one another, how we should live. But I want to get into a couple of passages, three in particular, that I think are relevant to this question that Ben from Ohio asks. And we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. And this is Jesus uh, giving his, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And so we're going to just go through that a bit. Then we're going to go into Matthew 10, verses 16 to 23. This is Jesus also, uh, you know, explaining, you know, the, the situation to his disciples and what they're going to encounter and what are some of the problems that they're going to have to reckon with as they are on mission doing what he wants them to do. And then lastly, we're going to settle in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. We're going to read that selection. And I believe we're going to have an understanding uh, of some of the how and some of the what, but more importantly, the why. You know, there needs to be a why to the way that we handle conflict and the way that we handle disagreement there has to be a why in order for us to navigate the what and the how, really, and for that to fuel us and to keep us from losing heart or losing our commitment to doing what's right. So I also want to 
do a little bit of compare and contrast by what is meant by the term liberal and what is meant by the term leftist. You know, these terms are very often used interchangeably in American politics, but we should understand a little bit more maybe what has traditionally been meant by the term liberal and what is increasingly uh, used as the term instead, which is leftist. What is the similarity? What is the difference? We'll get into that a little bit as pertains to Ben's question. But first off, let's read Matthew five thirty-eight to 48, and we'll dig into that passage a little bit. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So that is Matthew five thirty-eight to 48. And I want to key in on verse 39 in particular, and also verses 44 and 45, because those are what come to mind in regards to your question, Ben. First off, Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I come from a long line of Mennonites on my father's side, and Mennonites have made much of this passage for the past five centuries since their uh, you know, Christian tradition uh, you know, was first founded in Switzerland. Mennonites take this to mean that we should never fight. We should never uh, have uh, physical conflict, certainly, but you, know, you would argue if you're wanting to de-escalate things, you're wanting things to not get to the point, rise to the level where physical fighting might be necessary. You have to deal with that. You have to head that off at the pass when it comes to your verbal interactions with people. And so if someone is being hostile and belligerent with you, you give them what they want. You, if they ask you for your tunic, you give them your cloak as well. You go above and beyond what it is that they are demanding of you. And so a couple of things happen from that. One, you don't end up having conflict, supposedly, in theory at least. But also, too, you make it clear that you are the innocent party. You are not a contentious person. And we are told in the New Testament that being a contentious person is not a good thing. We should warn contentious people in the church that their actions, their conduct, their attitude is warped. We should warn them. And if they refuse to listen to us, if they want to fight about that too, just like they fight about everything, then at a certain point, you just have nothing more to do with them. You tell them, that's it. I can't talk with you. I've got things to do. I've got people to have relationships with. I've got people to invest into. And you're just draining me. You are sapping my resources. You're exhausting me to no good end. But here we've got a little bit of a different idea. It's um, basically an opposite picture being painted by Jesus. 
for what this would look like if we did it perfectly. Do not resist the one who is evil. So even if you're in conflict with somebody who is an evil person, Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. And he's contrasting that with, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is an Old Testament standard of justice, whereby if someone is damaged by another person, a hostile party, or just even a negligent party, somebody wasn't paying attention, they didn't care, they were apathetic to the value of someone else's person and property and effects. So they damage either willfully, premeditatedly, or just in a moment of passion or in a moment of neglect. They just weren't paying attention. They were being negligent. If they have damaged someone else, then it is made right by damaging them or they have to pay it back. So if you have a murderer, for instance, they have taken, they've stolen the life of another person. And so their life is now forfeit. Their life has to be paid and required. They have to be put to death. That is the Old Testament standard of justice, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, Jesus here is not, and it can't be, criticizing the Old Testament law as though the Old Testament law was evil or wicked or whatever. But what he is saying consistently throughout the New Testament and throughout the Gospels is that the Old Testament law was not all there is to it. You know, a lot of times much was made of these passages in the Old Testament as a kind of excuse for being harsh. And there was a forgetting of, for instance, what Jesus, uh, through the prophet Micah, is saying, because Jesus is the uh, you know, same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament, even though he hasn't been incarnated just yet in the Old Testament. He does, he does appear as the angel of the Lord. But you have Micah 6.8 saying, he's shown you, a man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, yes, okay, there's the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth piece, but also not just do justice, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So do justice, love mercy. So love mercy is really what has been forgotten more easily than the do justice part. Do justice is easy to remember, especially if you're the party who's been wronged. Loving mercy is not always so easy to remember. And so we have here, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is talking about mercy. This is not talking about justice. It's talking about mercy. So when we're loving mercy in the context of an evil person who is attacking us, they're insulting us, they're hitting us, they're trying to provoke us, they're trying to goad us into a reaction, I think it's important to note a couple of things about this. Let's unpack what it means by slapping you on the right cheek. Slapping you on the right cheek in Old Testament, New Testament, Middle Eastern culture, I think even so today, slapping somebody on the right cheek would mean you're insulting them. It wouldn't be a mortal blow. We're not talking about somebody bludgeoning you with uh, some heavy, blunt object. We're talking about somebody being insulting, throwing down the gauntlet, if you will. They're trying to fight. They want you to get after them. They want you to respond in kind. They want this thing to bowl uh, over. They want it to build into a, a big, uh, you know, uh, to-do. They want to provoke a reaction from you. And really what it is is they want 
to destroy you in that moment. It might be just a moment of passion, but they're hoping that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth goes back and forth and back and forth until they have an excuse. You know, if somebody just walks in and they didn't see this person who's trying to provoke you slap you on the cheek, but they do see you slap them right back, who all of a sudden looks like the aggressor? Well, you do. You know, so they're trying to provoke you into a situation where they can make you look bad, where they can entrap you, and then they get the blank check in public opinion to go after you and to destroy you. So that's part of what is being uh, described here as a as a thing that we don't want to fall into. We don't want to get goaded and provoked into, uh, you know, for one, losing our reputation and understanding and losing our testimony, having a bad testimony with people. We don't want them to not be able to tell who is in the right and who is in the wrong in this situation. We want it to be very, very clear. We want to keep our hands clean and remain innocent ourselves, especially if the conflict is going to build. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek and you don't respond by getting angry and going after them, trying to destroy them also, you know, I'm going to slap you even harder right back. And if we don't do that, and then they also slap us on the left cheek as well, well, that just became all the clearer for anybody in the audience that you are the person who is being wronged here, and the person slapping you is the person in the wrong. They're doing the wrong thing. And so that's, a, that's actually a good thing in many regards. We are not supposed to be foolish. And also, too, you got to think about what James says in uh, the book that bears his name in the New Testament. James, brother of Jesus, writes that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So when James says that, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, you know, I want you to think about that in this particular context and consider somebody who slaps you on the right cheek. You know, you don't know what the backstory is on that. It could be that Satan has filled their heart and has, you know, tangled them up in this idea that you started it. You did something that provoked them. You microaggressed them. You said something offensive. You know, somebody claimed that you had an offensive social media post, and now they think you're a racist, they think you're a misogynist, they think you're a sexist, they think you're a homophobe, they think you're an Islamophobe, they think that you're a Nazi, they think you're whatever, right? Whatever they think you are, they think you've actually fired the first shot. And so they're responding, they're retaliating, they're providing the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth as a way of stopping you from doing any more. So you think about being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry for the righteous life that God desires is not brought about by man's anger. How do we respond righteously in this kind of a situation where somebody's slapping us on the one cheek claiming that they're the grieved party. If we want to respond righteously and wisely, we're keeping our anger in check. We're not giving full vent to it. We're not just reacting. We're thinking, we're reacting strategically in a wise way, in a circumspect way. And maybe we're talking with them and we're asking, you know, like Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, you go to him privately and you work it out just between the two of you. Also, if you 
are giving an offering at the altar and you realize that your brother has ought against you, you've sinned against your brother, or he's upset with you, he's offended, he thinks that you've sinned against him at the very least, stop everything, go to your brother, be reconciled, figure it out, straighten it out. And what you should be asking is you should be asking, what did I do? Right? Like, why are you slapping me? I don't understand. I don't understand why you're upset with me. So that's an important distinction, I think, to understand here. Another important thing to note here is this is not a mortal blow. This is not somebody who is slapping you because they're they're trying to kill you in, in a one shot. You know, they're insulting you. They're trying to punish you. They obviously have it in their head that you've done something wrong or they want other people to have it in their heads that you've done something wrong. You're inconvenient. You're in the way. You're standing between them and having something that they want, whether they have any right to it or not. But consider that we're called to love our enemies in verses 44 and 45. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This person who's just slapped you, who's insulting you, who's calling you names, who's being belligerent, they're being abusive towards you, this person is your enemy. They're showing themselves to be your enemy by the way that they're abusing you. They're not loving you. They're not respecting you. They're maybe even lying about you, whether they know it or not, or they're repeating lies about you. Love them and figure out a way to love them well. And loving them well will not mean affirming the wrong things that they believe. If they believe a lie, then loving them, you want them to believe the truth instead. So you're going to try and rack your brain about how to persuade them, how to win them over, how to convince them in a way that's persuasive, in a way that they'll listen to by the, your actions, by your conduct, and by your arguments, by the things that you say consistently and you explain carefully as you rightly divide the word of truth, having studied already to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed. You want to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you because that's what Jesus did. That's what God does towards us. We were enemies at one point, and our uh, forefathers, so to speak, if you will, persecuted Jesus, and they persecuted the prophets that God sent in the Old Testament. They persecuted his disciples, his apostles in the New Testament and throughout the history of the church. And we want to be perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect, as it says in verse 48. We want to not only love those who are easy to love, we want to love those who are difficult to love because that honors God. You know, don't do it necessarily for them. First and foremost, you have to remember the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself is the second command that is like the first, but it's not the first. It's not the first. You've got to remember your order of operations. It's first love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then love your neighbor as yourself. So moving on, well, no, before we move on, let's consider the fact that this is not talking about a mortal blow. This is not talking about somebody trying to murder you and murder somebody else. This is not, as the Mennonites believed in their tradition, where they made a lot of do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is not talking about mortal combat. This is not talking about an existential threat. This is talking about somebody trying to insult you, trying to hurt you, trying to hurt your reputation. And that can be very dangerous, yes, but you have to be wise and circumspect, not walk into an ambush and be lured into uh, you know, just perpetual escalation 
when it's not necessary, when there's a better way, when there's maybe an indirect approach that could be taken that would accomplish your objective of diffusing a threat more readily with a lower cost. So um, anyway, moving on. Let's also consider what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 16 to 23. Now he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, let's go back to verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, point one, you are a sheep if you belong to the Good Shepherd. And you want to. You want to belong to the Good Shepherd, so don't let the fact that you're being described as sheep uh, throw you off and offend you. You know, the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Don't be angry at being referred to as sheep. Just get used to it. But also, point two, there are wolves. You are sheep in the midst of wolves. If Jesus is sending you out, you are going to be surrounded by predatory people. Predatory people will want to devour you. So what do we do about that? We don't want to be devoured. We don't want to be sheep that are getting picked off by wolves. Wolves are vicious. Wolves will tear a sheep to pieces if they have half the chance. It's not good to be a sheep in the midst of wolves unless there's some way to be protected. Well, that's what a good shepherd is for, for one. But also, Jesus says, be wise as serpents. Innocent as doves, yes, but wise as serpents. So that wise as serpents phrase has always intrigued me, and it really should catch our attention. Wise as serpents means you think about, you consider, you contemplate what it is that the wolf is going to do next. You want to know so you can anticipate so that you can remain innocent, yes, but also so that you can beware of men, which is what verse 17 starts out at. Beware of men. Well, is that very loving? Is that kind? Is that helpful? Is that uplifting? Paul writes in Corinthians that, you know, love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Uh, you know, is that is that what we should do? It doesn't bear uh, any grudges. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Well, how... How do I do all of that? And how do I be loving if that's all of what loving is? And also think of the people that I'm around who are maybe malicious and unkind. How do I think of them as wolves and still love them? I don't necessarily love wolves. Although the left loves wolves. Colorado just recently passed a, a ballot measure this recent election in November to reintroduce wolves. But anyway... They love the wolves, but the, the ballot measure to protect the unborn from abortion, that was defeated. We love the wolves. We don't love the babies. Got it. See where our priorities are at. Be wise as serpents. Wise as serpents. Okay, so the serpent is the creature in the garden who asks, 
Hascott said of Eve and gets the ball rolling towards her disobeying and sinning, towards Adam disobeying and sinning, and both being thrown out of the garden. So that is the serpent originally. And then anybody that follows after him, anybody that follows that pattern, that mold is a serpent. And I think about, for instance, when John the Baptist says to the religious leaders that are coming out to hear him preaching in the desert and baptizing people in the Jordan, they come out and he refers to them very bluntly as you brood of vipers, you brood of vipers, you're a bunch of snakes. Ooh, whoa, whoa, John, John, whom I named my youngest son after, John. Is that very loving? You know, if they're being serpents and they should stop it, it might be the most loving thing you could say to them. You brood of vipers. You're a brood of vipers. Have you checked yourself here lately? Maybe you should check yourself before you wreck yourself. You're enemies of God in the way that you're puffed up and conceited, in the way you twist the law, and you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. But not only that, you don't want anybody else to enter in either. You brood of vipers. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 10, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Deliver you over to the courts. They're going to take you to court. They're going to try and get you in legal trouble if you don't bake a cake, for instance. If you won't photograph their gay wedding, for instance. If you don't want to pay for contraceptives that are abortifacient because it violates your conscience with regards to the sanctity of life with regards to thou shalt not murder, etc., etc. They're going to drag you into court and they're going to flog you in their synagogue. So religious people, even people that claim to be Christians, people that claim to even be religious leaders, pastors, deacons, elders, theologians, so-called spiritual people, so-called will flog you in their synagogues. They're going to embarrass you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to claim all kinds of things as a way of trying to destroy your ability to preach the gospel and live out the gospel faithfully. They don't want to live it out. They don't want to preach it either. When you live it out and preach it, it makes them look bad. And so they're going to try and make you look bad right back. They're going to slap you on the right cheek. Be wise as serpents. Their serpents be as wise as they are so you can anticipate what they're going to do to some extent and not be completely blindsided when they act this way. That's why Jesus warns us they're going to do these things. He doesn't want us to be taken by surprise. He says, really point blank and up front, this is going to happen. This is what they're going to do to you. But he says when, not if, when they deliver you over, when you're dragged before governors and kings for his sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Okay, so let's stop right there. Pay attention to this. Ben, to answer the question, of how do you go about doing that, being kind and helpful and uplifting to a liberal while not giving the impression you support their stance or point of views, it is critical, impor critically important that we are guided by God's word, that we know that, we study it diligently to understand not just what it says, but what that means. 
And how do we apply it? We don't just understand it in a head knowledge sort of way. We're living it out consistently as possible by God's grace, not perfectly, but as consistently as we possibly can, repenting when we fail to meet God's standard of obedience, when we fail to be faithful, even though he's faithful. We trust in his faithfulness. By his grace, we will endure and overcome, and he will be honored. We'll love our neighbor. We should be familiar. We must be diligent. Study to show yourself approved workmen that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to be guided by God's word because God's word is the truth. Also, God's spirit, Jesus says, don't be anxious. You're going to be anxious. You're going to be nervous. Don't be. He wouldn't have to say don't be anxious if we weren't inclined to be anxious about this. I'm going to be dragged to court. I'm going to be flogged in church. You know, it says synagogues, but we can just say church. They're going to rake you over the coals in the church if you're faithful. And if you say, no, that's not right. No, that's not good. That's not true. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what God's word says. There's a price to be paid by those who remain faithful in the midst of others who want an appearance. They want a reputation for piety and for righteousness. They don't want to actually be righteous. They don't want to actually obey God. They don't love God first and foremost. They love themselves. Their God is their stomach. And they'll feel threatened, rightly so, by your example, doing the compare and contrast for those that are bystanders. Don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. If you have God's Spirit in you, rely on that. Pray for wisdom, as James says. Listen to the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Not just in that moment, but train yourself and pray that God's Spirit would guide you and give you the right words to say so that when that happens and before that happens, you're saying what you ought to. You're not saying what you ought not to. You're saying things that are true, that are helpful, that are good, that are necessary. You're not saying things that are false. You don't want any falsehood. You don't want any flattery. Flattery can look a lot like love in our climate. We can't afford to get tricked by this bait and switch, whereby flattery, affirming all life choices, even if they offend God, even if they disobey God, even if they're dishonorable, even if they're destructive, even if they're tearing people apart, we cannot afford to affirm that and agree with it. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, Jesus says in verse 22, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When, not if, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, we have to remember in context, Jesus is saying this as he's sending his disciples out. This is before his crucifixion. This is before he gives the word to go out to go and make disciples of all nations. So remember this in context, but it doesn't just apply to that period of time, what he's saying here, what he's promising, what he's warning them about. It doesn't just apply to when their ministry and their gospel sharing was confined to Israel, because initially it was. It was just to go to the towns of Israel, and then afterwards it was expanded to all nations, make disciples of all nations. That's the Great Commission. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, you go back up. It says, 
brother will deliver brother over to death. Verse 21. Verse 20 says, It is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, the father his child. The children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all. So when it says all, it means all. It means your family. Even your own family is going to hate you if you're faithful to Jesus. So you got to be prepared for that. You need to be ready for that. You need to be ready to be brokenhearted because it's going to break your heart. And it's going to make you sad. It's going to make you want to give up. It's going to make you despair. It's going to make you angry at the injustice of it, at the unfairness, at the betrayal that you face. But, 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 but. Verse 22, latter half. The one who endures to the end will be saved when they persecute you in one town. Flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Keep going. Keep on trucking. Keep getting after it. So, Let's remember that. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Beware of men. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Also, Matthew chapter 5. Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So remember who your Father is as a Christian. Your Father is God. Remember that. Take comfort in that. And, uh, and don't despair. So let's move on. Point four that I wanted to cover in this episode is do a little brief compare and contrast between what is meant by the term liberal, what is meant by the term leftist. Now, the term liberal traditionally, historically, has meant someone <clears throat> who is uh, free, somebody who believes that other people should be free, somebody who believes in limited uh, overhead government, so that they can have maximum individual liberty and freedom. But I want you to ask the question when you hear that somebody is a liberal or they describe themselves as a liberal, first, what are they being freed and liberated from in their minds? And what are they being liberated and freed to? So what do they think they're in bondage to? And what do they want to be free to do? Freedom is slavery is a famous Orwellian line from the dystopian novel, 1984. And very often, liberals historically, going back to Thomas Paine, writing in the 18th century, liberals from Thomas Paine to the present have not seldom thought that tradition is something to be liberated from. Uh, religious tradition, for one, political tradition, for another, that tradition constrains us in a way that is unhealthy, that is unhelpful, that is contrary to our nature, that we should be freed from the expectations that are hoisted upon us by previous generations. That's how we get traditions. Our fathers, our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers, our great-great-grandfathers had a certain idea, and we don't agree with it, and we don't want to be uh, confined by their ideas. So Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine, they had quite a lot of things to say and write about this idea of how we relate to tradition. Edmund Burke is the father of what we now consider to be political conservatism. And he wrote that tradition is something that we should be very careful with. We should try and be good stewards of it. And that's why he would describe himself as a conservative in our day. That's why conservatives uh, so often are for not throwing out 
the way that we've traditionally done things, not throwing out quickly uh, or at all, really, tried and true principles. They want to slow down. They want to talk about this. Hey, wait a second. There's something good here. There's a reason why this is the way we do things because it works. It's historically worked. Or there's a reason why we don't do that thing that you're suggesting because it's historically not worked. So liberals very often have said we can't necessarily trust previous generations. They didn't necessarily know what they were talking about. These are artificial constructs that get in the way of us reaching our full potential. And so if somebody's a liberal in the classical sense, that might mean that they're for limited government, but it doesn't necessarily mean that anymore. Because very often what you find when you liberate people from any notion of right and wrong, uh, of wisdom and folly, what you find is that based on their human nature, they do the wrong thing. They do bad things. They do evil things. They do wicked things. They do foolish things. They do counterproductive things. They get them and those around them into hot water. And so as liberalism detaches people from the idea of virtue and the idea of reason being something in a historical context that means we do certain things, we don't do certain things, we think in certain ways, we don't think in other ways. As liberals have tried to liberate us from Western civilization, from Christianity, from our Judeo-Christian values, as they're so often called, as they've tried to liberate us from these things, it you could think of it like somebody on <clears throat> one of those 18th century sailing ships trying to liberate their ship from the weight and impedance of their masts. Well, wait a second. The mast is what holds the sails, and the sails are what catch the wind, and that's kind of how the ship gets to where it's going. No, 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 no. That's what they want you to think. No, no, no. I, I don't like the way that that sail is blocking my view. Let's just cut it down. Let's throw it overboard. Um, come again? You know, they're liberating us from a rudder from sails on a sail ship. So reason and virtue are important, and we find that out in their absence once they've been jettisoned, once they've been thrown overboard. And so as liberty and virtue are tied together, and we can't really be free if we're all murdering each other all the time, and we can't really be virtuous if we have no standard of what is right and wrong that came to us that we've inherited, that's fixed, that's transcendent, that it is above our individual experience. We're not learning everything through trial and error. If we don't have virtue and reason, and we've been freed from those, so to speak, because freedom is slavery, from the 1984 novel by George Orwell, then increasingly the people that were before referred to as liberals, once they've liberated us, then they become tyrants, they become leftists, they become totalitarians. And because they've liberated us from virtue and from reason, they can govern, they can rule, they can dispense with justice in a way that is not virtuous, but is vicious. And in a way that is not reasonable, it is irrational and random because they're just led around by their passions, by their feelings, their emotions. The anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that they uh, should desire, that God desires. And that's all they're left with is just their anger, their anger that this didn't go well, and then they try and cover over their sin by blaming and scapegoating everybody for not having jumped on board their foolish uh, endeavor to chop down the masts 
and uh, chop up the rudder. They're adrift in the ocean and they start looking for people to eat because the boat's not going where it was going and we're running out of provisions. So we're going to start being cannibals and see how that works. We're going to take a vote. 51 to 49 says we're eating you. So that's something to note. Anyway, we'll move on. Liberal and leftist, not necessarily the same thing. It's kind of a question of, you know, what are we being liberated from and what are we being liberated to in their minds? But before we run out of time here, let's read and consider First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So consider First Peter 2, 13-25. There are a lot of parallels with the other passages that we talked about earlier from the gospel according to Matthew, things that Jesus said, Peter is saying those, and he's kind of, it's like the remix, but he's explaining it to his audience in a way that is more relevant to the specific questions that they're asking him, the specific things that they're expressing to him, they're frustrated with, they're struggling with, they're dealing with, there's conflict, there's doubts, there's insecurity, there's a searching for, okay, what do we do? You know, like what if the emperor, what if the governors are persecuting us as Christians? What if our neighbors are persecuting us as Christians because we don't follow the civic religion of the empire of Rome? We don't refer to Caesar as Lord. We refer to Jesus as Lord. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Who is the Lord that Peter is talking about in verse 13? We're talking about Jesus Christ as Lord, not Caesar as Lord. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Well, right out the gate, for the Lord's sake is to say, you're not being subject to this one human institution that was traditional in the Roman Empire at this time, which is why Christians in early uh, church history were put to death. They were fed to lions. They were lit on fire in Nero's garden to act as torches. This is why Christians were crucified, sometimes upside down, sometimes beheaded, sometimes stoned, because they didn't always submit to every human institution. Now, 
What does that mean, though? You know, be subject to every human institution. What that means is you're stopping and considering, can I be faithful to this? Can I obey this? Is this contradictory to what God's word says? But what do you do when the authorities contradict, when they conflict with one another? You're being subject to the emperor or to the governors that are sent by him to punish those who do evil, praise those who do good. What if the governor is at odds with the emperor? Well, what then? You know, what if your local sheriff is at odds with your governor? What is the, the proper course there if your city council and your county commissioners are at odds with the mandate to shut things down and to close businesses, even if the businesses are going to go bankrupt and the people that run those businesses might commit suicide, they might lose their homes, they might lose everything. You, you know, your local magistrate says, um, no, you guys can stay open. You know, in the case of Wealth County, that is the circumstance. And so not liberals, because they're not liberating us, they're actually uh, removing any and all liberty, leftists are taking this COVID business as an excuse to shut down everything and everybody. And they're arbitrarily deciding who is and is not essential, who is and is not important. Well, that's a dangerous, slippery slope. How do we be subject to our masters? Well, it's important to remember we as Christians are in this country, in America, part of the governing authority. We are part of the human institution. We are supposed to be part of the check and balance on the worst inclinations in the nature of man. That was by design. That's the way that this system of government was contrived for the reason that it was contrived so that we could provide checks and balances. We could provide accountability so that evil men were not going to punish those who do good and reward those who do evil or praise those who do evil with impunity. So that's an important thing to note. But we're almost out of time, so I want to highlight verse 16 before we go. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Live as people who are free. Now, we in America believe that we're free, and it's nice to see this verse 16 where it says, live, live as people who are free. Live as people who are free. But... The next sentence fragment, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Okay, wait a second. What you're saying here is all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Is that what you're saying? You know, I can do all things, but I will not be mastered, become a slave to anything. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Well, I'm free to do X, Y, Z. Well, yeah, it doesn't mean that it's right. Not everything that you're free to do is a good idea. Not everything that you're free to do is going to honor God. So that's an important thing for us to remember. We're living as servants of God. And so that includes, but is not limited to the way that we, we react to liberals or leftists without affirming the things that they are saying. Now they're saying my body, my choice, for instance, for example, if Peter can tell us, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. If he can say, we are doing good so that we can put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He could say that, 
Well, that means that it's okay for us to at least acknowledge in our own minds that some of these people are ignorant. They're ignorant and they're foolish people. That means that's within the bounds, that it's not an unloving thing. In fact, we have to understand sometimes you're casting pearls before swine and not do that. Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine for they will trample on them and then turn and tear you to pieces. Don't give the dogs what is holy. So sometimes when you're dealing with very belligerent, abusive, nasty people, the thing is not to tell them, not to convince them, not to persuade them that you agree with them. Sometimes less is more. And you win them over by your good conduct. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That's a good thing. Make them have to shut up and eat their words, all the awful things that they said about you by living as people who are free, not as a cover for evil, but as servants of God, using your freedom to love God, to love your neighbor as you love yourself, to honor those who are in authority, even if they're not perfect, even if they're not always doing what they ought to. You respect the office, even if you don't respect the actions and can't respect because they're not respectable, the actions that are taken by somebody in a certain office. Even if you have to disagree, even if you have to dissent, even if you have to say, I can't do this thing. I, I can't both obey God and obey what you're telling me to do. So I have to obey God rather than men. So that's that's what we do. We do it with gentleness and respect. That's how we do it. We try and be clear. We try and rightly divide the word of truth. And we let God's spirit guide us. We let God's word inform us. If we do that... They're going to hate us. They're going to try and cause trouble for us. And we endure. We endure by remembering who our God is, remembering what we're called to. Don't let it get under our skin. Keep pressing on doing what we're supposed to be doing. So anyway, I hope that answers your question, Ben. Love the question. Thanks for asking. If anybody else has any questions for this program that you'd like to hear answered or addressed, uh, please write to garrettmullet at gmail.com. Hit me up. Let me know what you think. And uh, I want to tell you, too, check out On the Rocks podcast. It's a project by me and Micah Hirschberger. We've been writing together for On the Rocks blog for five years now. And we've started this podcast here recently, just recorded our third episode. We're still trying to work out some of the technical uh, you know, realities of, of how to do it, how to excellently execute. But check it out. Listen in. Hit subscribe. Also, too, if you'd like to be added to a email list whenever new episodes of this podcast or the on the rocks podcast come out if you'd like uh, an email summary of some news stories for the week things that we're talking about on the podcast uh, versus to encourage you that we're talking about on the podcast <clears throat> i want you to email me at garrettmullet at gmail.com i'll add your email address to the list and when we have new content we'll send you an email once a week with what the podcast is uh, that has been recorded or the podcasts if there's multiple episodes, episodes that we've added and also just some helpful things to kind of keep an eye on uh, a little bit of just quick analysis on uh, why these things are important why we should be paying attention to them so anyway if that interests you hit me up contact me i'll add you to the list but uh, for now thank you so much for listening and god bless <laughs>